restaurant business is as competitive as it's ever been. So what are chains doing to build sales these days? Hello, I'm Jonathan Mays, executive editor of Restaurant Business Magazine, and in this week's edition of A Deeper Dive, me and Peter Romeo, editor-at-large of RB, chat about some of the company's sales-building efforts. The restaurant industry has hit a slow-growth period. Same-source sales have been relatively weak for four years, and most chains have relied on price hikes to increase revenue. That has given way to more creativity and innovation on the sales-building side. Peter and I chat about subscription services and things like pasta passes and wine clubs, but we also delve into ghost kitchens or dark kitchens and whether they can actually build sales. We talk extensively about delivery and whether restaurants can generate sales that way. We also chat about takeout sales and whether that's a sales-building strategy for casual dining, and then we talk about licensing. Please have a listen. Okay, I am here with Peter Romeo. Peter, welcome again to the podcast. Uh, thanks, Jonathan. As always, great to be with you. All right, so um, looking at uh, same-source sales for the past couple of years, they've been relatively weak, and what we appear to be seeing now is a bunch of efforts on the part of restaurant chains to find new ways to pull in sales because it's just not that easy to come by. And one of these... Uh, one of these strategies that uh, we've seen more recently is subscription services, and you wrote about one involving Salt Lake. Talk a little bit about that, could you? Yeah, sure. So what uh, Salt Lake was uh, going to do, it, it uh, very much appears to be a trial balloon um, on Black Friday when everyone was uh, uh, heading to the stores um, uh, or at their computers. They were going to sell uh, subscriptions, a year's worth of subscriptions for, um, uh, I believe it was uh, $69, just under $70 a month. Uh, and essentially what you got was uh, a shipment of their specialties. Uh, for the most part, that was a, 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 a big chunk of meat, uh, whether it was brisket or mm -hmm. ribs or whatever. Um, in other instances, it uh, skewed more toward merchandise uh, with a cookbook and uh, some of their rubs and, and um, uh, sauces, uh, but always food involved. And uh, basically their objective is to uh, treat uh, their hardcore followers to with a care package once a month, every, uh, uh, every fourth uh, Tuesday. And, uh, and and that's the deal. It's um, uh, sent the, the, the operation. Um, Salt Lake has, uh, they have four units, but really it's two restaurants to our um, uh, airport locations. Um, and they're going to handle all the logistics themselves. They are going to, uh, uh, they have technology handling the order uh, placement, but uh, they handle the fulfillment and they're sending it to customers uh, either overnight or via UPS. And uh, they're going to give it a try. Uh, and certainly it's a, a noble effort. Um, we see a couple of other efforts out there. Uh, for the most part, uh, the most recent efforts seem to be on a smaller scale, at least when it comes to restaurants. The most notable example was uh, uh, Burger King with um, their uh, uh, coffee subscription. You basically pay a, a relatively... Uh, bargain level price for unlimited coffees um, uh, or, or coffee every day. Uh, I don't I, I take back the unlimited part, but you get a coffee every day. And there, what they're really aiming for is convenience. Um, but there are other examples, and there are other examples that have been around a, a, a long, long time. Um, quite often, right now, the uh, subscriptions are um, 
uh, heavily discounted. Uh, the one that has been around for a number of years, and by all accounts, is a uh, huge success is Wendy's um, with its Frosty, mm-hmm. where you buy a key essentially um, uh, at the beginning of the summer and it entitles you to Frosties all summer long, uh, and the, the uh, uh, fee is, is nominal. Uh, and then we saw a wave of health-oriented concepts, uh, my uh, my fit food, uh, things along those lines, where essentially you're signing up for a diet plan, and either you're going into the restaurant or into the kind of a restaurant retail hybrid to pick up your food, um, or it was sent to you, and basically these meals were in accordance with a, a meal plan along the lines of some of the straight diet plans that have been around for eons. So, so it's, it's still just a, a slight ripple in the, in the background, but, um, but there's so much talk about finding other revenue streams, uh, other ways of, of countering the, the softness and uh, on-premise traffic that uh, I, I wouldn't be surprised if we see more experimentation. Uh, and certainly there are some huge success stories outside of the U.S., um, at our global uh, uh, restaurant leadership conference in Singapore, I was on a panel with um, uh, the young man who started um, a subscription service in Australia called U-Foods. And, and this is huge. And essentially, there is a health orientation to it. There's a wholesome orientation to it. But uh, uh, customers uh, order five meals at a time. Uh, these are not meal kits in that you don't have to do any preparation. You basically have to reheat parts of the meal um, and they either send overnight to your house or uh, you can pick it up at uh, participating retail establishments so that it's uh, the food is always fresh and their average uh, subscription fee runs about a hundred bucks if I recall 100 bucks per person if I recall correctly and they're going gangbusters they're really um, just killing it over there with that model so so I think it's something we're gonna see more of for sure yeah, a couple of other examples. I think one big one is uh, Olive Garden, that uh, never-ending pasta pass, I think, sort of qualifies, something like that. Um, maybe it's a little bit different that it's, you buy a single pass and then you get a bunch of pasta for a while. Um, Smashburger did something similar to that. Um, but one um, one really interesting, uh, you know, one really interesting almost a service um, that's more like a loyalty program is comes from Cooper's Hawk. Um, and if you think about it, it's the same way. Their wine club sort of acts in many respects um, like, uh, you know, it is basically a subscription service. You're, you know, you're, you're getting wine. The vast majority of customers pick that wine up at the restaurant. Uh, many, many times they, uh, they get food at the same time. And, and, uh, so it provides a revenue stream and then sort of a, a, a base of customers that are, that are extra loyal to the company. So, I mean, I think that, uh, I mean, I agree with you. I would imagine, especially given the maturity of this industry at this point, that you'll see a lot more experimentation on this front going forward. Because I think if we think about where the industry is at, and it really does need to find new strategies to get customers in the door. And and I think that's that's one of these, it, it's a real big, I, I think, issue um, with, with, with restaurants as we see, you know, I mean, same-store sales and same-store traffic are challenged. Um, companies are pressured to find new ways to um, get customers excited about their offering. And I think sometimes these subscription services can can do it or um, certainly can 
um, provide you know a, a a recurring stream or in Burger King's case it's it's trying to get people more excited about their coffee because they want to generate breakfast sales you know things like that so I mean I think this is something that the industry really needs to probably look even deeper into than it has yeah and I would add kind of a weird twist to that um, uh, I think one of the uh, catalysts for subscriptions is going to prove to be the ghost kitchen because these facilities, you know, they, they pop up overnight and they essentially can create a, a brand instantly. You know, they basically conjure it up. They invent it. Uh, they don't need trade dress. They don't need brick and mortar. They can invent a little niche. And uh, given uh, how they can locate or serve as a local kitchen uh, with a relatively uh, small uh, distribution or, or, or delivery radius, they kind of counter the big yellow light for subscriptions. The whole thing about uh, freshness, you know, if you're signing up for X meals, um, are you going to get them all at once? You're going to get them uh, piecemeal? Um, well, when were they made? Were they made in the commissary? How fresh are they? Um, uh, with the, the ghost kitchens, uh, having uh, a subscription service where meals are delivered to the, the patron's house on a regular basis by a kitchen a few miles away, that's a very attractive uh, model. Uh, and they can, they being the ghost kitchens, can kind of conjure up brands that totally fit a, um, a, a rating uh, diet craze. Uh, you know, if they wanted to do uh, whatever, high protein, they could do high protein and invent uh, Jonathan's uh, House of Meat and do that for a while and, and offer a subscription to that. Uh, or um, uh, Jonathan's All Vegetarian Kitchen, they could set one up like that. So I, I definitely think we're going to see um, definitely going to see more of these uh, and the industry's going to have to crack the code for sure. I, I would much rather start Jonathan's House of Meat than Jonathan's House of Vegetarians. <laughs> but I mean, so do you see you see uh, you see this as a, a an opportunity? These ghost kitchens, you see these as an opportunity for restaurant chains rather than a threat. That's sort of. Uh, I see them as the biggest uh, uh, stimuli uh, stimulus that the industry has seen in a long time since the, the arrival of third party delivery mm-hmm. services. Uh, and I think the jury is still out whether these will be facilitators or rivals. It's so easy to morph into becoming uh, competitors that I think that there is no way that can not happen. Um, so I think we are going to see that. I think that the uh, third party uh, distribution uh, people or the delivery people, excuse me, are indeed going to um, start short. There's no need to bring in a restaurant. They're going to do their own. So I, I do think it's going to be, they're going to be new competitors. Whether mm-hmm. they can do it well, that's going to be the question. Yeah. Um, I know talking, I remember talking to um, uh, the uh, uh, folks uh, on the West Coast that were starting up a uh, alternative uh, pizza concept. And they were saying that the, the hardest problem they had was not the technology in getting that. It was perfecting a, uh, a pizza. Uh, the folks at Zoom said it took them nine months to get an edible piece of pizza, that it's a lot harder than uh, a lot of folks on the outside realized just to, to do good food uh, uh, in a safe and, and fresh way. So Yeah. I mean, I, I tend to think that the jury is definitely still out on on where these ghost kitchens Sit. I mean, I think one of the big fears that I have, certainly for smaller and independent restaurants, is you could get a ghost kitchen right in your your little trade area, and mm-hmm. 
And then suddenly you get a handful of sort of fly-by-night operators that come in um, and sort of use the lower, um, you know, the, the lower overhead and the lower cost structure that these ghost kitchens provide. And then they undercut your prices for, for a major base of customers. Um, and you know, that to me is, is one potential danger. Um, but for the most part, I mean, I, I have to admit that part of me just looks at these ghost kitchens and starts thinking glorified food halls or glorified mm-hmm. food courts for takeout mm-hmm. and delivery. And, you know, and it's just in another niche player. And I'm just not entirely certain that the restaurant industry has room for a lot more of these types of competitors. And, uh, you know, and then the addition of these sort of new brand names that nobody knows that, you know, maybe it's an opportunity for existing brands to sort of test out new markets and do things like that. And I think that maybe mm-hmm. you definitely see a, a potential down the road there. But it's hard for me that, to imagine that's going to be a major competitor outside of certain markets. Mm-hmm. Well, I think we'll see. Uh, we'll get the answer very soon because the speed of uh, expansion or the 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 spread of these ghost kitchens, it's really pretty phenomenal. Yeah. Uh, and I gather that part of that is, uh, relatively speaking, the cost of entry for them, uh, though it's not insignificant, is certainly much less than building X number of restaurants. Uh, you know, to build a kitchen with a lot of shared services, uh, it's doable, especially when uh, they can take advantage of good real estate rates in, in off locations, mm-hmm. uh, though that seems to be waning a little bit because uh, takeout is, is not being ignored. Um, but, uh, but, you know, we're talking about, uh, new revenue streams. Well, a new cost constraint or a new way of dealing with costs. Certainly what you mentioned in terms of testing a new market or building awareness for a new market, I, I, I think that might get traction. I think that that means just makes a lot of sense rather than, uh, doing the usual, uh, conventional, uh, uh pre-expansion work. Um, even no, no matter how scientific you are, there's still a certain amount of guesswork to it. And this, I think really cuts into that guesswork and the upfront costs, the investment, sort of the, the trial fee to see if a brand will fly. It's so much less that I, I can't see that not catching on. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. And some of these ghost kitchens definitely did get a lot of money, by the way. Uh, oh, yeah. um, cloud kitchens, the, the, the company yeah. from, Uber founder Travis Kalanick got uh, I don't know hundreds of millions of dollars from from um, uh, you know from investors and Kitchen United has had some very interestingly from 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 a real estate developing company um, so I mean yeah I mean these things are definitely coming and and uh, you're right we'll we'll definitely find out soon um, so let's talk about a couple of other sales building strategies first off delivery. Um, this is going to come as no surprise to you, but I'm a little bit skeptical of it still. Um, I'm astonished. Yeah, I am I just shocked. Here. I'm, I, uh, you know, and I, I think, I think that over the past year, I think that restaurants have, um, I think that they've figured out the cost issue. I mean, like large chains in particular, McDonald's, uh, Chipotle and 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 certainly Wendy's and and Yum Brands have have sort of figured out that all right we could make this at least cost neutral, and and that's you know takes care of a concern. But I still have issues about how big this gets, and I don't know that it's going to be the big sales driving strategy that some executives think it's going to be, simply for two reasons. Number one, um, most of the United States is spread out, and you can't really do this efficiently enough. 
um, um, to, to make it work. So like in New York, it's, you know, everybody's close together. You have all these restaurants close together. And so you can do it, you know, and then you've got a lot of people with a lot more money than they really, you know, than, um, and, you know, they have less time. And so, you know, delivery is a big deal for them. Like it is in like Europe and China and places like that. But then the, but then you go, you know, into places like I live in suburban Minneapolis and I just don't see delivery as a huge deal here. And, mm-hmm. and then, and then you see uh, a business model to me where, um, you know, it, they just, these companies just don't make any money. Um, they really don't. Uber Eats doesn't make any money. Um, Grubhub recently admitted that it's going to be, it's very, very difficult to make profitability off the logistics element of the business. And then you have small companies like waiters already pulling back from some smaller markets. And so to me, to make money, they're going to have to raise prices. And I just don't see consumers paying enough money. So that's my big long rant about delivery. But what do you see in terms of, do you see this as a big sales delivery strategy, uh, sales building strategy for them? Or, or where do you see this going? I, I think that the reason why, uh, that whole phenomenon has gone from zero to 90 in the wink of an eye has been that uh, the industry or the third-party services have tapped a consumer desire, a strong consumer desire, a real shift in consumption habits. And I, I think of my own self in that regard. People have uh, sort of gotten tired of sports dining, you know, going out for the sake of going out, and they've kind of shifted for a variety of reasons. Uh, to become more, we've become more a nation of nesters, uh, where we want to just kind of lick our wounds in the evening and settle in and uh, stream some TV and watch Netflix, um, and that is re- very real. The the degree with which we're seeing it, the degree with which the consumers raced to embrace that option, says to me that ah, we're satisfying a need that wasn't even sort of appreciated beforehand, but. It wasn't as if we had to teach the, the dining out public how to use these systems. They learned very quickly and embraced it very readily. And you hear the numbers that people talk about, um, the sales figures, you know, uh, an upsweep of 60% or 25% or whatever. So they're really significant uh, gauges of demand. That's there. To me, the question is, the current model, is that a uh, sustainable way of satisfying that demand? Maybe not. Uh, I don't know, but I think that the smart people in our business are going to figure out how to satisfy that demand. Um, maybe it's different than what we see right now. I mean, one thing that's really palpable is how so many brands that were uh, quick to jump on the third-party delivery, mm-hmm. uh, that bandwagon, are now saying, you know, takeout is a huge market. We need to exploit that. We can't neglect that. And so they're kind of addressing it in different ways. Uh, so I, I think it can be done. I think it will be done. Uh, it just might look a lot different than, uh, what we're seeing today. Um, I, I think, frankly, I think we're going to see more of, uh, the, um, uh, the model that sweet green is using with it's, uh, uh, they're using it for lunch where mm-hmm. they deliver your lunch, one group area and you pick it up. Um, that was tried years ago. Uh, uh, brands were setting up uh, pickup stations at train stations on major commuter lines for people to grab their meal and go home. It was basically to feed that need to nest or that desire to nest. So we might see whole new models or whole uh, tweaked versions of it. But I do think off-premise is real. It's going to continue to grow. 
And I think uh, three years from now, when we talk about new restaurants, we'll say, do you have any seats? And it won't be a rhetorical question. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so I think it will. I definitely think it will be. And I think it'll be a, a huge growth area for restaurants that can tackle it. Um, those in the hinterlands who can't do it, yeah, they're going to have to sit on the, the sidelines, but they'll come up with different ways. You know, catering is huge. Party business, it can be huge. So uh, they'll find different ways of kind of satisfying that. Yeah. I don't think, I mean, just, you know, just to make, make it clear, I mean, I definitely think off-premise, um, which was sort of the next topic I wanted to, to, to discuss, off-premise is huge to me. And I, I, I think it's, it's definitely big, and it's big for almost, I mean, I haven't talked to a single operator that hasn't told me they're not, hasn't, that has not told me they're um, getting more takeout sales. I mean, I, I think no question about it. Nobody wants to leave the house. Everybody wants to sit, eat in. My issue, I think, is whether delivery becomes – I think that a lot of executives look at delivery as this option, as this potential to to capture more overall sales, right? So mm-hmm. the – you know, I mean, if we look at the numbers the last four years, the last four years and that sales have clearly been stagnant overall. Overall, restaurant mm-hmm. sales have stagnated. Most, For the most part, chains are getting by, by off of uh, – higher menu prices and and they're not Mm -hmm. really getting customers to come in more. Um, This year we have some evidence that independents are really struggling. And um, so, I mean, to me, and I think a lot of executives view delivery as a source of new customers that they can get more actual customer growth and pull in more sales from food at home. And I don't think that's the case. I think it's more about trading sales from chains that are, um, less convenient to chains that have delivery and chains that are more c- convenient. I think that's one of the big issues in the restaurant industry going forward is this trade of restaurant visits that are dine-in with with or without waitstaff to restaurant sales that are takeout. And, and delivery is part of that. But I just don't see the delivery itself as growing the pie to me. That's where I see this massive difference. I don't see it pulling away sales um, as much as some people think. Maybe I'm wrong, but I guess we'll find out. Well, uh, what about the dynamic of people not opting for delivery because they want it, because they're uh, customers of certain restaurants, but because they're customers of DoorDash or Mm -hmm. customers of Uber Eats. Folks that are more enamored of that option of going to that app uh, and uh, secondary in terms of what they order um, or, or from whom they order, I guess I should say, um, that are going to these marketplaces and saying, oh, you know what, I'm going to get something here, um, and I just love having this option. You know, that to me is one of the uh, mysteries of this whole thing. Mm-hmm. How strong is that following? Are these folks really diehard uh, fans of DoorDash? Uh, what does DoorDash bring to it where – They've got that lock where they've got that sympathy. Or is it just right right now their means to an end and um, it's sort of a generic option that uh, is the the option that they came across first and so they've stuck with it. To me, that's going to be really telling about the future of third-party delivery services Mm -hmm. for sure. Um, So so it'll definitely be interesting. Definitely some profit challenges, no doubt about it. Um, uh, You know, the the third-party services, they were so aggressive in their commissions and now, you know, all by all accounts, they're, they're backing off a little bit, but you got to wonder, did they maybe, were they a little too ambitious in their, in their, um, 
uh, in their commissions? And might they have gone the other way of maybe starting lower and building rather than starting high and, and lowering? So, uh, so it'll be very interesting to see for sure. For yeah, sure. yeah, yeah. I mean, if I see this evolving, I, I wonder if these these services sort of become these mobile ordering marketplaces, as you mentioned, mm-hmm. where can, you know, I mean, I don't necessarily want 85 apps on my phone. Um, you know, and I, I'm, I'm a, you know, like, like you, I cover the restaurant industry and, you know, I, I might use two restaurant apps. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, but you know, it, it might be kind of, it might be very cool to be able to go to one app. I mean, I definitely think it's cool to go to one app and then search my options. And then mm-hmm. order from there, but you know, mm-hmm. to me, I think the expense of delivery, unless they can find some way of getting more efficient, to me, the, I think the expense of delivery is a limiting factor, and that's where I think the issue is going forward. So, I mean, getting back to your early point, something about that has to change in some fashion. Something about the delivery business has to change going forward because it doesn't work. But right, I do think right. that this um, becomes sort of a, a you know, in an, an, a mobile ordering marketplace where where this is where consumers go to find their cool options and and that that's mm-hmm. what this is going forward and then there's definitely some benefit to that and then you definitely sort of take care of some potential pain points which is you know i i you know i want to stay in or i want to get takeout and i want just to know what my options are i think that can be definitely easily done through one of these apps and it mm-hmm. it certainly helps to me uh it was very interesting to me that this year was the first year i I believe the first year for any of the third-party services uh but doordash Mm -hmm. is selling a gift card Mm -hmm. uh and the gift card is to doordash's customers so you know they are saying uh we know you want your szechuan noodles um come to us and look for your szechuan noodles but come to us so i mean they are really acting as those marketplaces and so uh it kind of fits with what we're saying in that you know, they're trying to cultivate that loyalty to them, to their brand, rather than any restaurant brand. So uh, and what will restaurants do with that? Will they just capitalize on it or will they try to counter that? Uh, what's that going to mean? So, uh, again, uh, something with a great uh, profound implications that uh, we can just wait and see how it unfolds. Mm-hmm. So do you think that takeout is a real legitimate growth opportunity for casual dining or do you think that it's basically a defensive mechanism to keep them from losing everything no i think that there's real potential there and i think part of the problem that uh, the casual diners um, made was uh they were so enamored and so appreciative of the contribution to the bottom line that drinks made that they really were blinded to anything that uh, uh, would inhibit that those drink sales. And in hindsight, I think it was probably a mistake. They should have kept their revenue options open. Uh, mm-hmm. And the other thing is, if you look at the products that initially they were offering for takeout, quite often they were um, uh, products that really didn't travel well, and they would kind of jury-rig some kind of container that really wasn't made to carry them. Yeah, you wrap up a burger in tinfoil. Does that really do it? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so burgers and, and fries, we know that they don't travel well, even though burgers remain, I think, the, uh, the, the most delivered item. Um, uh, but now they've gotten smarter about it. Uh, they've gotten smarter about uh, order sizes and what they offer and narrowing the menu so you have uh, uh, fewer options so the chances of flubbing one uh, is that much less, um, uh, or steering people more toward things that are worth their while to put in the extra 
uh, effort in the kitchen of packing something up and uh, dealing with a driver and all that kind of stuff. But I do think it's a, a definitely a, a growth opportunity. Uh, how it's managed, how it's handled is really the case. Um, I'm not so sure it's incremental. Here, I think that probably is their customer and they're getting him or her for mm-hmm. at home versus coming into the restaurant. But at least they're getting that business rather than losing the customer uh, totally to someone else who offers delivery or takeout that's uh, going to be a, a better experience. So it, it's really kind of a matter of, of holding on to their uh, business um, uh, and by astutely maybe managing the menu, maybe steering people towards some higher ticket items and, and that way trying to um, make the business a little bit, tiny bit incremental. Um, but what I do think is highly incremental is catering. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's a lot of good catering. Uh, it's not limitless. It's certainly, um, uh, I think that we're going to start hearing people say, okay, you know, we, we stopped that growth of 15, 20%, and now we're more in, in, in human terms of our, our growth. But, I mean, I think how much catering our company does on any given day mm-hmm. and there's certainly a demand for uh those um group meals consumed off-site uh whether it be for businesses or even on the social side uh it's it's no longer a, a mark of shame to put out someone else's food uh, now it's almost a, a a status thing to put out uh whatever you know pizza from giordano's or whatever um to put out something that's a, a real mm-hmm. uh favorite so that, I think, is cultivating new business. Uh, not limitless, but for right now, a nice pop um, logistically, a lot easier because you're dealing with bigger orders. Uh, a lot of times it's big enough where um, it's worth their while to take on the cost. Uh, and uh, still the cost is less than paying that 30% or 20 or 30% commission to the third party. So I, I, I think catering is going to become a standard as offering cups. Uh, mm-hmm. I think it's going to be, you know, across the board, what everyone's doing. Um, so, uh, and, and the wild card to all this is what happens with drinks. Hmm. Is there going to be a way for, certainly on the casual dining side, but even on the, the quick service side or the limited service side, will there be a way to, to deliver beer and wine? Uh, that could be a pretty much a game changer uh, if they can crack it and if they can do it right. Mm-hmm. But those are big ifs. Yeah, I think those are really big ifs. I mean, and, and until they can solve that particular problem, I think that the the casual dining sector is going to have to sort of address the fact that they weren't really built for takeout. Um, they were not built for the idea that a large number of people were going to take their, their, their casual dining food home with right. them or get it delivered. And so to me, I think that these, that these companies, what, what is going to be a major challenge for a lot of these companies going forward, and certainly these franchise brands, that uh, franchise casual dining brands in particular, they're going to have to address that issue of how their business model, you know, was developed. And, you know, are there things they're going to have to change about that because they're not going to have that drink profit that they used to have um, you know, maybe like I think, you know, Outback says that they get, you know, you know, high enough, you know, higher than average ticket and things like that. But I mean, I think that, the, you know, those very profitable drinks are just not going to be there as much in the future, um, you know, I mean, unless they can get, you know, beer delivery or whatnot. But, you know, so to me, I think, 
going forward with, with this takeout business, they're definitely going to have to address that business model issue. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. They were not built to jump on this effortlessly. They've got to adjust and uh, adopt. Um, so uh, I don't know about you, but I'm always sort of keeping my eye out, you know, to, who's going to be the disruptor? Who's going to be the, what's going to be the brand that kind of figures it out or, or moves it forward, that finds a way to uh, alleviate some of these problems? And I guarantee you, if they can do it and they prove it works, uh, and within two weeks, we'll see all the brands doing it. Um, uh, so uh, so it, it'll be interesting. But yeah, they've got to reinvent themselves. You know, they, they, they've evolved. They started out as basically uh, uh, a place where you could sit down with the kids and have uh, what you knew as fast food. You know, the, the gourmet burger segment was, was huge and a huge catalyst for um, uh, casual mm-hmm. dining in the 1980s. Now, no one talks about, well, maybe Red Robin, but you know, we had umpteenth concepts dealing basically in higher, higher end burgers. And really it was for the baby boomers that grew up in Burger King and McDonald's and maybe wanted a drink or maybe wanted to sit down and, you know, they morphed into much different things, but they need to morph again for sure. Right. Sir, as always, this was a fantastic discussion. Well, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. May I throw out one more revenue opportunity that I think is worth noting because it's always been there, but as of late, it's really uh, become democratized, Hmm. and that's licensing. Oh, Um, yeah. uh, did a story recently where chains with a handful of units, uh, three, five units, are getting into licensing, and... They're doing it basically um, to spread awareness of the brand, um, but they are surprised at the um, uh, at, at the sales that they're getting. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times, it's relatively effortless. You know, you've got to get the right partner, but for the most part, you're doing quality control rather than production. Uh, and helping out with the marketing. And I think we're going to see an awful lot more of that going forward, uh, for sure. Um, So I think that's going to be one of those new revenue streams, for sure. Right. I I completely agree with you. Um, I think that uh, licensing is definitely something that, um, you know, that certainly if you have a strong enough brand, um, even strong enough local brand is something you should definitely Mm -hmm. Uh, try it can give you some access to different types of customers uh they become more familiar with your brand um i mean i mean there are some risks of course that you know it Mm -hmm. might not be quite the quality that you'd really Mm -hmm. want but i think for the most part i mean uh, you know a lot of companies have found some uh, a pretty nice revenue stream with these um you know by um by licensing their brand name now i would caution companies that if you're going to take that step don't ultimately sell your brand name to these companies when you get financially desperate but <laughs> yeah we we could both we could tick off a lot of those that mm-hmm. uh, found themselves uh you know selling the prized cow and and they had the anemic one in the barn that was just yeah. about to dry up um yeah. so yeah i i think you're absolutely right in that right. regard right so. yeah friendlies just did that friendlies just did that with um well, a couple of years ago, they sold. They essentially sold the brand name to Dean Foods, and then their their ice cream manufacturing. So Dean Foods controlled the the not only the brand, not only the um, the making of of their ice cream and and um, the sale of this ice cream at retail, but then they controlled the brand name. And then, of course, right. Dean Foods this year goes files for bankruptcy, right? right. <laughs> and um, uh, which was a problem. 
So. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm no economist, but I think that's probably a problem. You know, uh, the, the the classic of selling the food business was Bob Evans. Oh, and Bob yeah. Evans had um, uh, a company that manufactured sides called Orville Kent, yeah. and Orville Kent had an unbelievable market share for the longest time. Uh, and they they sold off that brand uh, uh, along with their their namesake brand yeah. and at the retail side. So yeah, we've seen it a lot. But then again, if I said if we said to the average consumer, hey, do you know that there's an, a Lowry's restaurant chain? They would not be aware of it, but they're probably aware of the Lowry's uh, seasonings. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, so uh, it's interesting stuff. But yeah. but as sure. always, a pleasure to speak with you. And anytime, just give a holler. Thanks, man. All right, take care. Bye. And that's it for this week's edition of A Deeper Dive, which was edited, as always, by Christine Cawthon. Artwork by Nico Hines and Sarah Stewart. You can find this and other episodes on our website at www.restaurantbusinessonline.com backslash article backslash deeper dash dive. You can also find them on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn Radio, and Spotify. I'm Jonathan Mays, the executive editor of Restaurant Business Magazine and your host and podcast producer. Thank you for listening.